Good morning. Good morning to you uh, at home online. Uh, to you who normally gather at 8 o'clock, I, I do want to apologize. It actually turned out to be a beautiful morning. Uh, but Houston weather did what Houston weather does, uh, and when it looked like uh, rain was going to happen, given the uh, sound equipment outdoors, we, we just couldn't take the, the risk. Um, obviously, uh, we wish we'd have been able to gather now, so hindsight. Okay, I know this isn't our normal rhythm, uh, but I want to pause and pray before we get into the sermon today, given the nature of the topic and where we're going to apply this text to, which will make more sense in a few minutes. Uh, I want to stop and ask the Lord uh, to guard us and protect us and give us ears to hear if that makes sense. Let me pray. Father, we're asking for right now, over the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, that you would uh, just give us hearts to receive, protect my mouth from error, and may we hear what you might have to say to us from your word and be a more rich and full community because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, we are in the final week of a series that we've been calling uh, A Meaningful Presence coming out of the book of Ephesians, um, asking in a season like this, pandemic, racial tension, and what will be a divisive election season, what, what kind of presence should we have with one another and for our neighbors? And we've said that our, our presence, it should be marked by hospitality. It should be marked by humility, renewal, and love. And this week we hit our final one. And here's the premise of our sermon today. Here's sort of the baseline premise, that we are one church baptized into one body who come to one communion table. And so let me frame the text like this. If you're in a grocery store and you see a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. I mean, they're on the ground, laying on their backs, arms and legs flailing about. Uh, you don't really think much of it because it's, it's normal, right? Two-year-olds throw tantrums. It happens. If you see a six-year-old doing the same thing, on their back, arms and legs flailing about, uh, you, you, you take a little bit longer look because it's not quite as normal. It still happens. They are still children. I can attest to you that six-year-olds still throw tantrums in public, and it is humiliating. But it happens. But you see a 26-year-old doing the same thing in a grocery store, and someone calls a social worker because that person is likely dangerous to themselves and others around them. Because at some point, at some point, Living like a two-year-old isn't just socially uncomfortable, it's dangerous. And spiritually speaking, Paul is going to make the same point in our text, that not growing up at some point isn't just spiritually uncomfortable, it's dangerous. And so the headings that we're going to look at our text under are these. The danger of immaturity, the road to maturity, and then how we grow. All right? The danger of immaturity the road to maturity and how we grow. So let's pick it up in verse 11, and we're going to zero in on verse 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. So that, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, so here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church in Corinth, this incredibly diverse church, Jew, Gentile, coming together in one. And he says, I I want you to be equipped. I want the body to be equipped so the body can grow up so that you will no longer be children. More specifically, so that we will no longer be children. And the word children, it's, um, it's the word that's usually referencing infant children. So you'll no longer be infants, spiritually speaking. We are infants by nature. It's how we all begin. It's where we all begin. It's why he said, you notice he said we, so that we may no longer be children. He didn't say so that you may no longer be children, so you might grow up and become like me one day, so that we may no longer be children, because he knows that spiritually speaking, infant is where we all begin, but we are meant to grow up. And I want to say to you that if you are newer to Christianity, uh, or you've been a Christian for a while, but just feel like, man, everybody knows more than I do, uh, I am younger in my faith, that's okay. Sojourn is a place that we hope you are welcomed, and that you can grow one step at a time, putting one foot in front of the other, learning to grow with us. But here's Paul talking to individual Christians and saying that, that we should no longer be infants, spiritual infants. Why? Why? Because spiritual infants get tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Now, this word doctrine, uh, it, it's not the word that's commonly used for doctrine. So don't, don't think like major doctrines of the faith. Don't, don't think so you get misled by sort of false teaching over XYZ, major doctrine of Christianity. That certainly happens. But the word that he uses here is a more broad bucket term for how to live. It's the lifestyle application from teachings. And the picture that Paul is painting here of spiritual infants is someone who uh, comes along, says, hey, this is how you're supposed to live. You need to stop living like this. You need to start living like this. You need to value this and go live like this. And Paul's painting the picture of someone who's unable to diagnose the good from the poisonous. Like the baby holding poison in one hand and an apple in the other and not knowing what to do. Not knowing which is dangerous and which isn't. When Jesus uses this word, um, he only uses it twice, Matthew 15, Mark 7, he refers to the commandments of men. These teachings, these are the commandments of men is the way that Jesus uses this term. People saying this is how you ought to live. And so in this sense, in the broad bucket sense of this word, political ideologies, and ideology is not, I'm not using that term negatively, ideologies is the ideas, ideals that form our really economic or political uh, grid from Because these are teachings of men about how to live fit in this broad bucket, this broad bucket of commandments of men. They are teachings, often, that we can easily be blown around by, easily be tossed around by. So why do we find 
political ideologies, political grids so compelling? Here's why. Because political ideologies, political grids, right and left, they all have a story of redemption to them. Baked into them is a story of redemption. All of them have the narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, baked into them. They all have a defined problem, solution, and future. All of them. They all have a problem with society that has been defined. They all have a solution to that problem. And then there is a future that we can hope for. They all have a problem, solution, future baked in. And generally speaking, what happens is the problem that we most identify with determines the political ideology or grid that we adhere to, which in and of itself is not a problem. But it takes us to the danger of immaturity. Because in 2016, churches all across our city, much well beyond our city, but I'm speaking for churches in Houston right now. People left churches in droves because of how someone else voted. Now, this was not a significant issue for Sojourn Heights, but it was an issue at other Sojourns and a lot of Acts 29, which is the network that we're part of, churches in the city. Which is why we originally titled this sermon. Uh, The original plan for this was to be a standalone sermon titled, A Christian's Posture in a Politically Divided Church. That was planned pre-COVID, COVID brought it into a broader series. What happened was people looked at someone else's vote and said, because I deem your vote unchristian, I can no longer be a part of the same community with you, and I can't come to the same table, communion table, with you. Which is a more immature response than anyone's vote in 2016. So here's the danger of immaturity, that you would divide what's meant to unite, that you would take what is meant to unite, the people and the table, and divide it. And if you divide the table over political positions, you've made an idol out of political positions. You have taken an idol, meaning something that you, you have taken something good and made it ultimate. You've taken political engagement, something good, and made it a personal identity. See, here's what idols do, all of them. They create barriers to your worship, and they create barriers to your neighbors coming to God. The danger of immaturity is that we take something good and make it ultimate, and we divide what's meant to unite. And in doing so, we hinder our worship and we hinder our neighbor's ability to come to God. Now, the road to maturity. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, unity of the faith knowledge of the Son of God, leading to mature manhood, stature, or age, the stature of the age of Christ. This is not plural, like children was, speaking to individuals. This is collective, singular, speaking to the church. 
Point being that individually we're children and together we mature. This is why if you want to mature in your faith, you don't do it alone. It does not happen in isolation. In isolation, we grow more immature. It's together that we grow more mature. If we want to mature in our faith, it requires other people. But there's something that is uh, counterintuitive in this text. At least I found it counterintuitive as I was studying, because intuitively, I would think maturity leads to unity. But in the text, it's the other way around. It's unity that leads to maturity. Here's why. Disunity or division, separating yourself, disunity takes you away from, leads you away from what it is that leads to your maturity. It takes you away from the people and the place, the church and the table that God has given for your growth and for your maturity. And dividing those things takes you away from the things that are meant to give you and to grow you. But unity in Christ, even in the midst of divergent political views, keeps you together and keeps you coming to the same table. That it's in isolation we grow more immature, and it's together that we grow more mature, which takes us to the kind of presence that we want to have, the kind of presence we need to have, a mature one, a mature presence. No longer be children. A mature presence with one another and for our neighbors. The road to maturity is unity, and maturity is what we need from one another, and it is what the world needs from us. Listen, the world does not need another community screaming at one another. They need to see maturity, maturity lived out inside a community. Paul takes it a step farther. He doesn't just say the road to maturity is unity. He gives a particular way to live together. So how do we grow? Point three. Look at verse 15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So there it is. Rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Now, practically speaking, this is just obvious, right? So if you think about parenting, we get kind of illustrated with parenting. If you have parents who, uh, uh, who, who only tell their children how much they love them, but they never tell their children what they need to hear, it stunts the child's growth. But if you have parents who are always telling them exactly what they need to hear, but never doing it lovingly, never being able to sense that parent's love, It's going to stunt their growth. A community that speaks truth in love, this is how we grow. But here's the thing. Being a community that speaks truth in love, it takes a few things. One, it takes a transparent community. It takes a community willing to be honest with one another. Applied it to our parish, it takes people willing to step into these smaller groups of men, women, and children and to not wear fake smiles with one another. To take the fake smile off, be honest with one another, it takes a transparent community so we can know how to speak truth and love to one another. It requires a courageous love. Listen, it it is hard for almost everyone. And there's a few of us that this isn't so hard for, and that probably is another issue that needs to be addressed. But it's hard for almost everyone to tell other people what they need to hear. For almost all of us, this is difficult. 
but it takes a courageous love to do that. And then it takes a vulnerable people because it's almost always hard to hear what you need to hear. And it takes a community, a people, a collection of men, women, and children who are vulnerable enough to listen and receive what they need to hear from one another, speaking truth and love. We need both truth and love to grow. And you know what truth and love looks like? It looks like absolute honesty soaked in gospel. I mean, absolute honesty soaked in gospel. So there's something in this text that I, I really did not see until prepping for it this week, that I've always thought of truth and love simply as um, saying true things lovingly. And that is obviously certainly part of it, but Peter O'Brien, a commentator, theologian, makes a compelling case that it goes beyond just saying true things lovingly. He says that what Paul is referring to here, what Paul wants is the content of their testimony, their speech, to be the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, that this Ephesian church, Jew and Gentile, people from all over diverse backgrounds showing up in one community, speaking truth and love is taking the diverse viewpoints and learning the language of the gospel and applying the language of the gospel to one another because at the heart of the gospel is both truth and love, truth that you are a sinner in need of grace, love that Jesus loved you enough to die for you to give it to you. And the sinner in need of grace, that's not the you were a sinner in need of one-time grace to convert you. That is, you are a sinner today in need of grace, sustaining grace displayed in one another. People who have the love of Jesus on the cross, dying for you, baked into them, willing to extend it to you. This is how we grow, gospel applied. We grow when the words, when our words and our posture are soaked in gospel truth and gospel love. That's how we grow together. Gospel applied to a community. We do not mature beyond our need for the gospel to be applied to one another. The gospel isn't just how we begin, it's how we live. And so what does it look like, practically speaking? Well, it looks like a community speaking truth and love. It, it, it looks like a group of people who, who don't shout past one another when we disagree. We have honest dialogue. It looks like a people who don't blow each other up or anyone on social media. It looks like trying to understand someone and not just counterpoint them. Listen, 16-year-olds try to win arguments. They try to counterpoint, counterpoint, counterpoint. So do um, eight-year-olds, my son. He got it from me. Anybody close to me will tell you, when I disagree with Brandon, um, and I'm making my point. I know he's usually not actually listening to me. He's just Rolodexing his counterpoints, getting ready to fire back. It's an area of immaturity in my life. It's not funny, and it's not fun. I need to grow up, and I need the church to help me. 60-year-olds try to listen and understand, mature ones do, so they can make a difference. It looks like not treating your political position as the political position. And it looks like learning to open the scriptures, learning to open the scriptures and critique what you believe. Let them rub against what you believe. Let them challenge what you believe. 
Listen, it, it's easy to open the Bible and find something to critique someone else with. Open the scriptures and let them critique what you believe first. If you can't do that, then let's not critique someone else. Let's open the scriptures and let the scriptures challenge what we believe and rub up against what we believe. And if you don't think that the Bible does, if you don't think that the Bible challenges something that you believe, if you believe or if you think, I am a Republican, that is my party, they can do no wrong, what they believe, I believe. Or, I am a Democrat, that is my party, they can do no wrong, what they believe, I believe. You might not be thinking like a spiritual adult. You might be getting tossed around by the commandments of men. Soldier, we, we want to be a church that is engaged in our world, that is out making a difference in our world. And politics is just one part of that. But we want to be a people who are engaged politically. But we want to take the stature of Christ, the manhood uh, of Christ, out into the world into our discourse as a mature people, engaging dialogue, not, not as children tossed to and fro, but as people taking the age and maturity of Christ out in the world. It is what we need, it is what our neighbors so desperately need. And if I can maybe give one last point of application. Spiritual maturity realizes this. If I could steal it from Tim Keller, which I am, Christians don't simply fit in a two-party system because the Bible binds our conscience on values but not necessarily on strategies. So, for example, the Bible commands us to care for the poor. It is not an invitation. It is not an option. It is a direct command from the Scriptures. If we don't, then it means that we simply don't understand our neediness before God. But it doesn't necessarily prescribe the best way to do that. The Bible commands us to care for the immigrants. If we don't, we don't understand that we are outsiders invited in by God. But it doesn't prescribe the best way to do that. It doesn't prescribe a nation's immigration policy. See, a mature church can agree on values and debate strategies like adults. Because our speech is motivated by gospel truth, soaked in the blood of Jesus' love. Listen, a mature presence, it is what we need for one another. It's what the world needs from us. And so as we wrap up this series, as we wrap up this series and we continue on in the season that we are in, the season that is going to get heightened in its opportunity for division, it is going to be right around the corner, as it has been. It's just going to get even more crystallized. Let's strive to be a people who hear the words of Paul, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro, that we'd have a mature presence, that we would come together and together learn to diagnose what is good from what is poisonous. Let, let's 
Let's in this season come together and open the Scriptures and go, these are the values that are the imperatives in the Scriptures for us. And then let's wrestle through strategies to, to be the best agents of shalom in the world. Let's have a mature presence among one another and for our neighbors. For obvious reasons, our world so desperately needs it from the church of Jesus. Let's be it. We can. In Christ, powered by the Spirit, we can. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the men, women, and the children that make up Sojourn Heights. We love them so much. We know that our love for them is only a fraction of your love for them. I pray that we would be the people that Ephesians is calling us to be, the people that have a hospitable presence, a renewing presence, a humble presence, a loving presence, and a mature presence in our world as we go no longer as children, tossed to and fro, but that we could take the stature and the manhood of Christ out into the world and be Oh, be that stabilizing presence that our neighbors so deeply need. Oh. Lord, help us to be that kind of church. We have such a glorious opportunity to be a living apologetic of the gospel in this window of time. Help us to be it. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.